Welcome to Shiro. It's good to be back. It's good to talk to everybody. Today, we're going to be talking about whether or not Trump's political power is waning. If he still has that kind of power that that we thought he had leading right up into these latest primaries, or what the last three or four or five or six primaries um, this last Tuesday have, have shown us about, you know, what kind of power he has. I'm going to go over a few things just to get us set and started on on where we're coming from and what we're going to be discussing. And then I'll go ahead and invite some people to come on in and give their opinion and talk too. So if you want to go in and go ahead and call in, call in, get in the queue if you want to talk at some point and just hang out there for a second. And I'm going to go over some information. So the biggest uh, elections that I was really looking at were the elections in North Carolina, Ohio and Pennsylvania. And I'm going to be focusing on the Republican primaries, not the Democratic ones. Those are fairly solid. Those are good to go. I mean, as solid as they're going to get. But what these Republican primaries, what I was hoping to glean from them was how well the Trump endorsed candidates were doing, how they were able to raise money, how powerful they were going in after Trump endorsed them, and, and what that could tell us about you know, Trump's stronghold in that swing state over the Republican Party. So in North Carolina, you know, Richard Burr um, was retiring his Senate seat and Trump endorsed a candidate called Ted Budd to take the seat. So after Trump endorses Budd, Budd jumps to a double digit lead in the poll and Budd won that primary last week. So North Carolina is solid on that front. The other thing you should know about North Carolina that's interesting is the Trump-backed candidate, which was the incumbent Madison Cawthorn, he's the the really young representative who had a lot of scandals going into this last primary. He was he was not reelected. So, I mean, it's hard to tell. Does that really reflect on Trump? Does that really reflect on the scandals? You know, had had these scandals come out after he had won his primary and he was the Republican candidate going against Democrats, would Republicans have overwhelmingly reelected him? It, it's still too hard to tell. So I don't think we can use Madison Cawthorn as a barometer for anything except when Republicans in North Carolina had a choice about about different candidates in the primary, they weren't having Madison Cawthorn. They were really kind of sick of his antics, even though he was the Trump-backed candidate. So that's something to watch. Ohio, Trump-backed um, J.D. Vance. He, he's the author of that book, Hillbilly Elegy. Give me a break. Um, so he endorsed Vance on April 15th. And at that point, his position in the race was kind of weak. Um, no public polls had him leading at that point. He was kind of ranked in third place. Um, but, oh, this is important. A poll that was released prior to Trump's endorsement showed Vance trailing the challenger, Josh Mandel, by 5%. So he wasn't doing too well. Trump endorses him on April 15th, and he and Vance jumps to the lead in every poll conducted thereafter. And he ended up winning on Tuesday by 8%. So uh, he won by 10%. So, you know, that Trump endorsement really helped him. And it was really obvious that it helped him. And that's in Ohio. That's critical to look out for because we know Ohio is going to be a swing state. We know it's going to be critical in the 2022 midterm election, and even more so in the 2024 presidential election, where I'm just going to make the assumption that Trump will be running again. We have to see if he's the candidate. We have to see if that pans out. But 
I'm going to run with the worst case scenario, which is that Trump gets the nomination and is running again in 2024. Okay, let's go next to Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania was a really interesting race. And a lot of it was because, you know, Dr. Oz of Oprah fame, he he jumped in the race and he has a lot of controversial concepts. And the voters of Pennsylvania were not feeling him. They weren't into it. And what's even more interesting is that the guy he was running against who was doing really well leading into the election, McCormick, he's a former Bush staffer. So he's more old guard, old school. And Pennsylvania voters were, were really feeling him. They were really into that. And then here comes Trump on April 10th. He endorses Mehmet Oz, which kind of shocked a lot of people. And a couple of things happen. Um, Oz, who had been trailing in the polls by 6% a week before the endorsement, suddenly jumps to a three-point lead over McCormick. But the other thing that happens that's really weird is the endorsement of Trump for Oz gives a boost to Kathy Barnett, who is this kind of like third candidate out there who's heavy MAGA, heavy crazy... Like she, they had pictures of her marching to the Capitol with Proud Boys um, on the January 6th insurrection. She's a woman of color. So it's like, it's just crazy. So two things happen, you know, she gets a boost in the polls. So it's sort of like the people that jump away from Oz, the MAGA voters, the heavy Trump MAGA voters, they go to, they go to her. And then the other people that jump away um, from McCormick, go to Oz. It's, it's really strange. That election has still not been called. They are they are dead heat. So there's going to be a recount there. We don't know if Trump was able to bring Oz over the finish line, but we do know either way that that, that finish is not going to be terribly strong. It was really close. And I think that's because there was another Trump candidate option that was not endorsed, but that was still there. It sort of pulled the vote away. So that'll be interesting to see. Another race we want to look at or another state we really want to look at is Georgia. Georgia is really interesting because uh, Brian Kemp is the current governor of Georgia who's running again. And Kemp, you know, called the election in 2020 for Biden. And Trump didn't like that. He really pissed Trump off with that. And so David Perdue is the Trump-backed candidate in Georgia who's running for governor. The thing that's interesting, though, is, you know, Perdue is not out raising Kemp. So he's not pulling in that money that Trump typically pulls in. Like once Trump endorses a candidate, usually the money floods into that candidate from the MAGA donors. But that's not happening in the same way. And it could be because we're still in the primary and people are just sort of holding their money back to wait for that general election. Like they want to see who it's going to be and then they're going to back them no matter what. But the money is just not coming in like it used to for Trump candidates. And the other factor you want to look at is usually when Trump would back people, no one else would primary them. So they would sort of fall away, that the competition would fall away in the races. And that's not happening here either, which I think is very interesting. Another race we want to look at in Georgia is for Secretary of State. We want to be looking at all of these Secretary of State races. They're critical because the Secretary of State is the overseer of all of the election totals, and they certify the election. And remember, Trump was trying to get to all the Secretary of States and swing states in 2020 to say that, you know, to sell his false election lie. And it didn't work out for him. Brad Raffensperger was Secretary of State in Georgia. And remember that famous phone call where Trump was like, I need to find 11,000 votes, Brad, just find them for me. And Raffensperger stood up to him and said, no, we're not doing this. This is not okay. Um, Raffensperger is is facing competition from a Trump candidate whose last name is Heiss. Um, And I'm going to like, that's the election I'm going to really watch out for to see 
how that pans out, because if Heiss is able to beat incumbent Raffensperger, that could really tell us something about where the state of Georgia, where Republicans in the state of Georgia stand for Trump, where they're feeling comfortable, where they're not. It could be a race where like, oh, we don't care. It seems like the whole election law thing that Trump was selling, even though he is still using that in the same way he was before, he has not slowed down on that nonsense. It doesn't really have the same effect with voters that it did before. So that's going to be an interesting race to see not only what Trump is still doing in Georgia, but it's kind of going to be um, telling to see whether or not the election lie it, it has the power that it did before for Trump, whether or not it's going to continue to hold steam to get voters to vote for him. And so that's going to be interesting. Okay, there are a couple things I want to go over before, you know, I start taking calls and I start asking everybody's opinion on what they think. And some of those are, let's talk about some of the things that show, you know, the Trump support is weakening and some of the things that show that Biden support is weakening. Now, keep in mind, we're really talking about, you know, the upcoming 2022 midterm election. And based on how that goes, we're going to try to predict how 2024 is going to pan out. You know, I'd like to remind everybody, it's really hard to have a, a viable discussion about 2024 right now, because there are too many factors that are just still outstanding. You really can't get into a heated discussion that's accurate about election stuff until you are in the thick of it. And we are just on the outside of getting into the thick of it. A lot of swing states, Arizona, um, Oh, not Ohio. Arizona is coming up. Oh, Wyoming is coming up at the end of August. Arizona is going to be in August. And Wyoming is going to be a huge referendum on, on Liz Cheney and whether or not they're going to support her when she stood up against Trump or whether or not they're going to back the Trump candidate that he has going up against her. Um, you know, Mike Pence went to Wyoming and stood up for Cheney and basically said what Trump did wasn't right. So Wyoming is going to be really telling. And that's mid-August. Um, Arizona is the beginning of August, and there are a few races there that are getting really interesting. Um, for example, in Arizona, the governor's race for Republicans, you know, the Trump candidate is Carrie Lake, and she's being outraised left and right in the GOP. There's a large field of Republican candidates. The money's getting divvied up across a lot of them. And again, this could just be a case where Republicans are sort of hesitating to send in their money until they know who the candidate is and they're going to back whomever it is either way. Or it could be a case of, you know, there's so many candidates, it's just candidates, it's just divvying up the pot and it's, it's not helping. But what this does tell us is that the Trump candidate, Carrie Lake, she's not just sweeping in on the dough, which is what typically happens for Trump. Trump's challengers or the Trump candidates' challengers are not fading away like they did before. And they're certainly not in the Arizona Republican gubernatorial race. And the money's not just flying into them. So that's really interesting. Um, okay, so a couple of things. I'm just going to go over these last few things about why we know. Okay, so what shows us that Trump is weakening is, um, and this is interesting, NBC did a poll. Um, and before the 2020 election, so before the last presidential election, they asked Republicans, are you more a supporter of Donald Trump or of the Republican Party? And 54% of them said they supported Trump more than the Republican Party. So the same question was asked again by NBC in late January 2022, so this year, and that number changed, showing it's evenly divided. So now 
um, 46% of people said they support Trump first, and 46% said they support the Republican Party first. So he's lost some ground there. And I would say that that's significant ground, given how close everything is going to be and how evenly divided everything appears to be. Um, Trump has endorsed 12 candidates in the Republican gubernatorial primaries. Again, like I was saying, you know, those challengers are still there. They're still in it. They're still viable, which is not something that he's used to facing. So that's that's divvying up the money that's keeping his candidates from getting all the money. And that means Trump is not fiscally is in control of the Republican Party and their war chest, I think, as everybody had given him credit for. It's my personal opinion that that's the reason why, you know, Kevin McCarthy and and Ted Cruz and all of these, you know, QAnon backed candidates are still giving Trump such deference when he's seemingly so out of the political realm is because he's sitting on war chests and he has the ability to fundraise like no one else. And they all want access to that money. But what we're seeing now with these primaries and the competition is he may not have that. I mean, he may be sitting on a pot of gold right now, but he his ability to pull it in may not be the same. And that could be interesting. There could be a shift of loyalty there. Um, another place that Trump is supporting a gubernatorial candidate is Maryland. Um, and he's, you know, Dan Cox, who is Trump's candidate in Maryland in the gubernatorial race, he's being outraised by the Republicans. Nebraska, Charles Herbster, this guy's a trip. He's had at least eight women accuse him of sexual harassment since Trump endorsed him. And um, he's facing a ton of scrutiny all over the state. He's had harsh criticism about his own personal business practices from the sitting Nebraska governor. And, you know, Nebraska Republican politics is very old school. It's very conservative. And I just don't see that playing out well for Herbster, but we'll have to see. Um, Again, Wyoming is going to be really, really telling if Liz Cheney is able, you know, she's got a huge political dynasty. She's Dick Cheney's daughter. It'll be really interesting to see if she can pull this one out. I think that's going to tell us a lot about the future and fate of the Republican Party. What is still helping Trump at this point and his candidates is that we have, you know, Biden has an approval rating right now that's not good. But they would, I mean, I would have said that you know, things don't look terribly good for Democrats in general headed into the 2022 midterms, simply because the economy is not doing as well. We've had two years of a pandemic. You know, we've got this um, oil shortage and supply shortage resulting from Russia's aggression in Ukraine and the war there. A lot of things are happening that are causing hardships all over the world, specifically for Americans. And that's reflecting onto Biden. And so that's something headed into 2022 that just wasn't going to be good. Um, It wasn't going to favor us. And the rising inflation is not a good thing for Biden. There's this concept that cultural liberalism, you know, outside of cities, like in the suburbs, it's just it's it's not fitting with people. Um, And so those are really big issues. Again, with these votes that are so close in 50-50, the independent voters are truly the swing voters and they're going to decide everything. And the question is, where are those independent voters sitting? You know, there were a lot of suburban women this time that came out to vote against Trump and they're being figured in as another swing vote in this election. But what could possibly help is that the recent draft of Roe v. Wade possibly being overturned, which That'll most likely, if that happens, it should happen in June. That's going to fuel Democrats big time headed into the 2020 election. And and those swing voters for suburban women, 
they're they're likely going to be going to Democrats um, because it's not a popular decision to roll back Roe v. Wade. Um, you know, seventy percent of Americans support it, so that's that's going to be interesting, and that's a recent shift. We're going to have to see what happens with that. Um, Trump again is continuing to sell this like election lie that nobody's really into, and they sort of just you know, accept it as just a defeatist proposition. It's not that popular. So like I was saying, not only is this a referendum on Trump's power, these next few primary elections, but it's a referendum on the election lie in general. Um, and then there's the whole argument, you know, Biden used, which was that democracy is on the ballot. <laughs> and it really is because, you know, these states are electing governors and secretary of states, which if you don't have the right person in office, Republican or Democrat, they could easily, you know, have done something awful and overturned the election instead of properly giving it to Biden. It's the same concept. So, you know, what happens in 2022 is, is Trump going to be able to place the, his people that he knows would overturn any election for him if it's false or not and help him out to help him cheat? Is he going to be able to get those people in position before 2024? That's another scary proposition. So that's kind of the backdrop of where I am. And I'm interested to know what you guys think. I hope that you'll give me a call. Go ahead and call in and get in the queue to talk. I have a caller here, David. Let's see. David, go ahead and unmute. Tell me what you think about Trump's power in the GOP and how you feel about it, it waning or what, what do you see? I think that it's waning a little bit. Um, you know, I've kind of watched trends, especially local. Like I, I live in Kansas and I, there's a Republican county that's near me. And like I've noticed that like the really right wing people, a lot of times they're not getting elected as much. Okay. Um, I was interested in what you brought up about what was happening in Pennsylvania, though. Um, and I was reading an article and I guess that Trump had called um, the person that ran it, ran against Oz McCormick. Uh -huh. that he had accused him of being a Democrat yeah. and said, yeah, and said basically said that he was a liberal, uh -huh. he was a sellout to China, and that he wasn't America first. Right. And, and what I thought was interesting about that is McCormick responded to that by saying he was America first, and then he aired a TV ad that showed a video clip of Trump praising him in 2020, saying yeah. that he served our country well in so many ways. Right. So it's just interesting how they're playing it like, They'll use Trump when it helps them. And then if they right. think Trump's a liability, they'll back off. Right. And like, I mean, if we go back far enough, you're going to see that Donald Trump's given money to the Clintons, a lot of money to the Clintons. Yeah. Donald Trump, who doesn't give money to anybody, he's given money to Hillary Clinton. So, I mean, yeah, it's just a gimmick. It's whatever works for him in the moment. That's a really good point. Right. And I think that's how they're playing it is if they think that his endorsement is an advantage they embrace it. If not, they distance themselves. And one thing I was in thought was interesting about the Pennsylvania election is that both those candidates that are neck and neck right now really yeah. didn't, yeah. they really didn't jump in and embrace the election lie that the election was stolen and that, you know, Trump was a victim of this. Like, you know, they didn't come out strongly and say, hey, Trump, you know, was robbed. Right. And because and I think, as you pointed out, a lot of people are just getting tired of that. Yeah. I, and it's just, it's, it, there's no, there's no factual basis to it. Nobody is willing to sell it. Nobody with any credibility is willing to sell it. And I think people are sort of over it. It's like, it's done. Um, and you know, another interesting thing in Pennsylvania, John Fetterman, the democratic 
gubernatorial candidate. He suffered, what, a stroke like a few days just before his primary. And he won the primary handily and he's doing really well. But that was a concerning thing because, you know, he that's going to be a big race for him in the general. And right. uh, it's going to be, again, a referendum on the election lie in Pennsylvania where Things got really close for a second. You know, Trump had the deck stacked so thick in Pennsylvania, and he was doing so much to use the Postmaster General DeJoy to keep mail-in ballots from getting where they needed to go. There was just so much, you know, just keeping voters from the ballot, trying to keep people away in Pennsylvania in 2020, that it was it was just really scary. Pennsylvania scared me a lot, probably more than any of the other states. Um, uh, let me ask you this. What do you think about, what do you think about Liz Cheney? And I know you don't live in Wyoming, but like Liz Cheney against a Trump backed person, given, you know, how the lineage of her, her political lineage and how, you know, how staunch of a Republican is like, to me, it seems like that Senate race is truly a referendum on whether or not Trump is going to be the de facto leader. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I completely agree with that. And the Liz Cheney story has been really interesting to watch because, as you pointed out, she is a strong Republican. Yeah. Um, you know, she has um, ties, you know, all the way back through her father, um, you know, always been a Republican. And yet because she stood up to Trump, because she's on the January 6th committee, she's been vilified. Right. And basically, you know, they excommunicated her. They've done so many things to her. Um, not because she's not a Republican, but because she disagrees with Trump. And well, I'm, they tried to say she wasn't a Republican. They right. actually sanctioned her, tried to say she wasn't. <laughs> right. Yeah. And that's the amazing thing is they tried to say she's a Republican, but she really never stopped becoming a Republican. She just didn't support Trump. Right. I mean, she still embraces all of the, you know, Bush Cheney doctrines and right. all of those things, which are very Republican. Trump Trump, who was never a Republican before 2015, roughly, I might add, right. <laughs> you know, like crazy. OK, anybody else? Give us a call. Hey, David, you want to just stay on the line here and we'll just keep talking and then we'll just add people to the conversation. Does that sound cool? Sounds good. Good. OK, anybody else? Let's see. Let's get somebody to call in. OK, Peter, let's see. Peter, go ahead and unmute. We'll just give him a second. You should be jumping into the speaker section any second. You can go ahead and unmute. That may take a second. Okay, so what other states? I mean, you said what state are you in, David? I live in Kansas. You live in Kansas. Okay, so what races are you watching really closely? Well, I'm watching the Kansas race, which had a Supreme Court decision that came out this week, um, actually in my district, the third district, where Sharice Davids is a Democrat who beat Kevin Yoder. Um, and she just won the she's up for reelection this year. Right. And um, and the district was gerrymandered and a district right. court upheld, uh, basically said that. And then the Kansas Supreme Court said, no, it, it's not a constitutional violation. And they let it stand. And and I anticipate it will probably go to the U.S. Supreme Court. But once it gets to the U.S. Supreme Court, I have no confidence that they'll say that they're gerrymandering. I have no confidence that they'll not be political as well. Um, Peter, yeah. are you on the line? 
Yes, uh, thank you, Amy, again, Hi. for hosting this. Hi. Yeah, just a disclaimer, I'm not a Democrat and not a Republican in okay. my entire we'll life. Still, we'll, we'll still let you stay and talk, Peter. Oh, appreciate okay. it. <laughs> appreciate it. <laughs> I, I live close to Pennsylvania. I, okay. uh, I dislike Trump so much, I plan to move to Pennsylvania in 2024, <laughs> should Trump decide to run, and uh, so just for gonna... the purpose of to soundly defeat him in Pennsylvania. Right. No, that, well, that I appreciate was... I appreciate you moving just to cast that that vote. That's nice. Oh, I'm going to do it totally legally, so he's not going to say yes. there's an election fraud committed by exactly. Peter. Right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> you know, so, you'll do it legally uh, as most non-Trumpers tend to do. So, what do you yeah. think? What are what are you seeing? What do you think about Trump's um, power? If it's waning or if it's still as strong as ever? Well, actually, first a question for you and the sure. David. I know both of your attorneys, at least mm -hmm. used to be, right? So, I asked Michael Cohen, Trump's attorney, uh -huh. uh, once he was on calling uh, uh, session, and I called him and said, "Hey, Mr. Cohen." Uh, you think that Trump will be uh, prosecuted for the January 6th? Because to me, it's a, you know, the evidence is plain in sight, right? So I want to ask you both uh, to see, do you think Trump will be prosecuted? Uh, you know, just, uh, you know, uh, clarification. I'm also asking a, a local uh, a lawyer friend of mine mm -hmm. whether Hunter Biden will be prosecuted or not. Because, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm promoting my theory of so-called white privilege, meaning right. that you know, a white person, if they committed some serious crimes, the prosecutor will exercise so-called uh, prose prosecutorial discretion not to Right. Prosecute. Well, quickly to answer mm -hmm. your, mm -hmm. Hunter Biden mm -hmm. hasn't committed a crime. <laughs> not that I'm aware of, not that's been factually found, not that a court has indicted him for. So I would say, mm -hmm. no, Hunter Biden won't be prosecuted. The question okay. is, will Trump be prosecuted with mm -hmm. executive privilege? Because at the time, he would have been a sitting president who enjoys executive privilege. And I think I, 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 any, law, any good lawyer, Peter, is going to tell you it depends. It depends. It depends. Um, I'm going to go further and I'm going to say, no, I don't think he will. I mean, barring any more evidence coming out that we don't know about, um, let's mm -hmm. say it, we would have to get evidence that it would have to come out, viable evidence that said that Donald Trump was directly involved in the insurrection in some way rather than just inciting it. Because the laws that protect executives, uh, there just aren't enough laws on the books because we've mm -hmm. never had a situation before where an executive um, abused his power to this level. And again, that was one of the arguments for why we needed to elect such a strong Democratic majority in the last midterm, because we needed to create some, some laws. Trump had Trump had basically shown us where all of the loopholes were and we had some problems and, you know, common decency um, wasn't working anymore because Trump was in office. And so we needed to create mm -hmm. a lot of laws that that stated that. Now, do I think he should be uh, do I think he should be sure? But, you know, like, look at the Mueller report. Mueller deferred prosecuting. And I in my opinion, I think he had it. I think he had a case. I think he could have gone forward with it and he should have at least tried. But it's clear mm -hmm. that people don't want to be the first to jump off on such a monumental thing without lock solid evidence. And I think Trump is too smart to have put himself out there. I think he used his children. I think he used everyone around him to do his dirty work. And I think we're going to mm -hmm. find out more when we get the discovery from the January 6th hearing. And when we see what the DOJ is prepared to do moving forward, um, we're going to uh -huh. see what actually happened, what transpired, who did what. But do I think they're going to prosecute Trump? I don't. What do you think, Dave? 
Yeah, I don't think they will. I mean, I think your point about evidence is a good one, because at this point, there's an ongoing investigation that's been ongoing for a year and a half, and we really haven't seen any results of that. And obviously, that's a secret investigation. Um, as far as I'm talking about the DOJ, um, you know, we don't know what they have and what they don't have. And I would assume that if they had something at some point that was a smoking gun, then they would have acted on that. And I think at this point, you know, absent any super strong evidence um, against Trump, you know, based on just what he's had as far as using his kids and using other people, I don't know that they would be able to go forward with that. Correct. Mm -hmm. Our the government, our government, the way it exists now without any supplementary laws on the books with regard to the president and the executive and how we need to reel in that power. Our current executive two constitutional powers are incredibly broad. And it was created that way to make sure that the executive, the president, could make all of the decisions he needed to make to protect the country free from fearing prosecution. So there was this big umbrella of executive privilege and all of that. Now, you know, since Nixon, since a lot of things, we've come to realize that, you know, absolute power, this it's not a monarchy. It's not a king. He shouldn't have absolute power. And, and to not hold people accountable sort of makes them a king. Dr. Fiona Hill testified very eloquently about that during the impeachment hearings, if you recall. But the problem mm -hmm. is that... The problem is that um, we just don't have any new specific laws on the books that talk about, you know, how we are going to hold people accountable when they're getting really close to crossing the line. And when you can't definitively prove the line was crossed, but you know it was from the subsequent actions. So. Uh, and, and it doesn't seem like those laws are going to change anytime soon because we keep struggling with this very slim uh, majority back and forth in these midterm elections. So I just don't see that changing anytime soon. I see. Michael Cohen, actually, uh, he said his response, because I asked the same question to him, right? His right. response is that he hoped uh, 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 that the uh, uh, Trump will be prosecuted, but mm -hmm. he believed uh, he would not be. Uh, right. He did not give uh, this much detailed uh, answer that you uh, you and David have given. I appreciate that. <laughs> sure. uh, I always felt I always felt that uh, there's a three separate branch of the government. When yeah. when the leader of a one branch of the government asks the public or his people to attack the other branch violently, I thought there's a clear crime, and yeah. it's not a national security decision. Whatever Nixon did, I understand. You know, the Congress went all the way to pass this uh, War Power Act because of the Congress so upset that Nixon is carrying out the secret war in Cambodia without mm -hmm. the, you know, congressional. I understand that, you know, the NSA surveillance. These are all the national security power that are given by the Korematsu court. Meaning right. that if Here, there's a but war, here's the thing, Peter, I'm just going to mm -hmm. interrupt you really quick to tell you, mm. you know, this is based on a premise from the founding fathers when the Constitution was designed and put into action. It was based on the premise that we need to give the voters the ultimate say and that the voters okay. have an obligation and a responsibility to hold their government in check because it was tended uh -huh. that it was intended that the people work with their elected officials so that democracy was thriving and was healthy. So the mm. idea that you would put safeguards in place to limit power didn't seem to see, seem as important when you have when you're trying to develop an electorate that's involved and that's engaged and that will vote people out of power when they're abusing it. And I mean, up until the 70s, it, it pretty much worked. 
I mean, and it actually through the 70s because it worked with Nixon, too. Nixon actually, Mm -hmm. you know, his party turned on him. The voters turned on him. He was, you know, Mm -hmm. he left in shame and it it Mm -hmm. did what it was supposed to do. It worked. I don't think they foresaw a time when you would have, you know, a reality TV star who was running (laughs) for president to make money Mm -hmm. and didn't even want to be president. And then Russia hacked us to help him. And, you know, he was just as surprised to be president as the rest of us were. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, everything beyond, like his intention was never to serve this country. It was always done to make money. So what do you do when you have someone in that position who's pretending to serve the country, but nothing they do is indicative of their service. And the worst part is, what do you do when you have enough people supporting that person that you cannot get them to turn against that person that's abusing the power? And that's the real crux is, is the MAGA racist issue is the QAnon theory is what they've been building up. Trump saw that as a trend. He took advantage of it. And he wrote it beautifully through the 2016 election. He was doing it mm-hmm. to make money, but he happened to become president. And and, mm-hmm. and 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 nobody really figured out how dangerous that contingency was. So I would say that the founding fathers tried to create a system that existed so that people could voice their concern and had to be as active as possible. They just didn't foresee that. In addition to having an executive elected that was abusing power, you were going to have 40% of the electorate abusing power as well. I don't uh-huh. think they foresaw that being an issue. But thank you so much, let Peter, me, for calling in. Let, 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 let me real quick answer your question about the uh, Trump's uh, stronghold. You know what? I'm actually uh, going to get to other callers, Peter, but I appreciate it. Oh, I apologize. It. Okay, no, sure. No worries. No thanks. problem. Mm-hmm. No problem. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, so oh, I had another caller and I lost him. Okay, David, if you could unmute... Jana, I saw that you were another caller. So if you could call back in, that would be great. I'm sorry we lost you. So just give us a call back in. And I just cut Peter off to take the call, too. (laughs) That's okay. If we don't have a caller, I have a quick question. Sure. What do you think about uh, Trump's, the prosecution in Georgia? Because to me, that seems like it's really a lot stronger and more blatant than his involvement, even, you know, being able to prove him in the January 6th. I think it's interesting. Um, Well, yeah, and they're going to have a lot more leeway to go after him because they're going to be using different laws and different, you know, it's, it's not going to be a, he's not going to be able to use privilege as a shield in the same way. Um, I think that, well, that's both that case and the New York AG case against the Trump org foundation, I think are the strongest ways that there's going to be any culpability for Donald Trump on the legal front. Um, Just because you're dealing with state laws, you're dealing with, you know, he's not going to be shielded in the same way. And, um, but I'm not as up on the, the Georgia case. Like I I know it was from uh, the AG, right? The AG filed. Tell me about that. I mean, my understanding was that they do have proof and they have an actual phone call where he told them to find the 11,000 votes. Right. So so I think they at least have some proof that he attempted to tamper with that election, um, you know, as opposed to speculation or statements or tweets. You know, like, I mean, I think you have a phone call where he actually tried to, um, it, you know, influence and commit voter fraud. Right. And you so, know what I always saw it as? I saw it as like. 
you know, kind of a Hail Mary, not meaning necessarily there was no chance, but hey, let's start this suit because then we'll keep Trump on the line as we head into the midterms and the general so that we're not going to just let him off the hook. And even if we don't succeed in holding him um, to account legally, it's still going to be ongoing and the pressure is going to be there. So it'll help in a political way that I always saw it as kind of backup for the upcoming elections in Georgia that were going to be heavily contested. That's what I always saw it as, but sort of like it can't hurt. It can't right. hurt to try to pursue these charges, but I don't know how strong the case is, yeah, but I don't know a lot about it. I haven't been following it as closely as I probably should. Okay. Jana, go ahead and unmute and then talk to us. You're going to want to unmute in the bottom right is the mute and you're going to want to unmute. Okay. Am I Hi. here? Yeah. Hi. Hi. It's good to talk to you. Um, I want to talk about um, the midterms from the aspect of voter turnout and specifically with regard to the ruling that we all anticipate is coming from the Supreme Court that's going to do away with Roe v. Wade. Okay. And I am really, really eager to see how that affects voter turnout in the midterms. Voter turnout with independents, voter turnout with women, who specifically? Everybody. Everybody mm -hmm. who's against what the Supreme Court is doing. Mm -hmm. Well, here's what I wonder. Like, let's take a let's take an Arizona McCain Republican. OK, so this mm -hmm. would be somebody who isn't a Trump fanatic, but somebody who will still vote for Trump if he's the only Republican on the ticket. Somebody who's just into fiscal conservatism, doesn't care as much about the social stuff. And let's say he's a white man. OK, let's take a person like that. OK, Is hang on a second. Hang, hang on a second. Wait, I'm not done. Well, I, Is somebody I take exception like that, to your. I take exception to your description of a Trump, of a McCain, uh, of a McCain Republican who's going to vote for anybody uh, that's a Republican, even if it's Trump. I'm creating a hypothetical. I know, but I don't I don't agree with I think there are a lot of McCain Republicans who would never vote for Trump. I don't think there are that many or he wouldn't have as much power over the state as he does still for the Republican Party. But we can agree to disagree on that. We okay. can take McCain right. out of that. Okay. All right. So let's say an old school Republican um, white man in Arizona. And when I say that, I'm saying like somebody who didn't just start voting Republican when Trump came along, not right. a MAGA person, per se, but somebody who's been, you know, tried and true conservative, fiscal conservative, you know, for 30 years, been voting Republican, um, that type of thing. Is is a man like that going to really take that much offense if Roe v. Wade is overturned and it doesn't affect him directly? Or and is it going to dislodge him from voting against the Republican that's running and for a Democrat that he greatly dislikes? I mean, I could see if you take a woman in that same role, I could see how that could swing a female moderate or Republican over to an independent place to vote for a Democrat because it directly That's affects them. That's what I'm talking them. about. Yeah. Right. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking okay. about, I'm talking about Democrats and, and, um, and the volume of it, the increased volume of Democrats that are going to be persuaded to get to the polls 
that it's don't not maybe be an increased but no the democrats that's not going to change what's going to happen is what's on the line is the independent vote that's what's going to fix it because you've I, already I'm talking got... about let me let me finish i'm talking about the democrats and i'm talking about the independents and i'm talking about republican women who have an open enough mind not to vote their husband's interests over their own. Okay. Those so I think, I think we're about. right. And I think we're talking about the same thing. I said earlier in the show that there was a large number of swing votes from suburban women who voted this time against Trump that had previously voted for him. And those votes are in play. And those votes are most likely going to be heavily impacted by Roe being overturned. And yes. then the other the other contingency you're looking to to gain massive votes, um, enough votes to overturn the sort of 50-50 that we have right now between the two parties, you're going to the independent voters. And you're going to see how much the overturning of Roe v. Wade affects them, both men and women. So I was talking about people who are Republican, not people who have gone to independent or who consider themselves swing voters, but staunch Republican men. But that's okay. We can we can right. drop that. No, I, I think I think, Roe, I think Roe v. Wade is going to impact a lot of things. And I think we're about to see how much it impacts. And if it if everything were I if it weren't such a case of our actual human rights being on the line, I would say this is an incredibly interesting exercise. I'd want to see these numbers. I mean, too much is at stake. I'm I'm not Susan Sarandon. Too much is at stake, and I wouldn't push it to happen at any level. But I, I think it's curious. I think another curious thing that we're not factoring in is how grossly political the Supreme Court has become and how open they are about it. I mean, I think we used to be able to say that, you know, within Congress, things the voters could turn things back and forth and then they would vote in into the executive, you know, their their choice as well. But the Supreme Court was um, kind of a standard. It was a staple. It was not political. It was not oscillating. And now it clearly right. is. And and it's, well, it's oscillating one way. Of- I'm, I'm not done. It's oscillating one way and it's not going to swing back anytime soon. So that's interesting too. Go ahead. Well, I my concern is also, I think there's a great opportunity here for um, registering new voters, new Democrat mm-hmm. and independent voters. Um, I think that the, that the new voters that are going to come uh, into being uh, at this point are more likely because of the Roe v. Wade issue are more likely to be registering as independents and Democrats. Um, So you're saying you think there's still a lot of people that are on the couches that didn't come off the couches for this last election with Donald Trump that suddenly now will over Roe? Yes. I I don't agree with that. But I mean, it will come out. Well, there are. Think about all the 18 year olds. The newly eighteen-year-olds. I mean, they yeah, they're, they're, they're going to are... go down the center. They're going to split, and 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 that's okay. I mean, I'm not. The voter turnout is incredibly important, and I'm not saying that it's not great to go turn out voters on either side. But we do know pretty much that what is going to make the difference is everybody in the middle and all of the people who will possibly swing in their votes. And we I know right before now that- Roe v. Wade, it might have been true that they would split down the middle. I don't think 
after Roe v. Wade that they will, because we don't all know. of the 18-year-olds who are turning 18 now have never known a time when there was not Roe v. Wade. Right. And I don't think they can fathom it not happening either. And I think that's just as dangerous. So I think it can go either way. But I'm just telling you that like what I'm really looking at closely is I'm looking at anybody who's going to be a a large block of a swing vote. And we know that that's typically more conservative suburban women who voted against Trump this last time. Those votes are up for grabs. And we're looking at a huge block of independent voters who are mostly swing voters who will go back and forth. That's what we're looking because both parties are tied up so closely. So I see what you're saying. And I, I think I get it, you know, that you're thinking, okay, well, this threat posed now with overturning Roe, it's going to really mobilize a lot of people like nothing else has, including, you know, voting against Donald Trump. I, yes. I would like to believe that. I don't think I do. Um, well, I the Republicans have become the party of of overturning Roe v. Wade because well, Trump is no, the, the one Christian put, conservatives are. But but Trump is the one who put those uh, three last three judges, justices on the Supreme Court. And they are, he's attached to them. They're attached to him. um, Dave, what do you think? Dave, what do you think? What's your opinion on this? I mean, I don't know. I mean, I definitely think there's going to be an impact and it's hard to tell, you know, we're speculating. We don't know exactly what's going to happen, but I would be very surprised if there wasn't some sort of a, a pushback from this. Because it is a right that women have had for so long. And there are going to be people, I think, maybe they're independents who are going to try to support candidates that, um, you know, support uh, Roe v. Wade. Mm-hmm. So I, I do think there's going to be some impact. Now, is that going to be Enough. Know, a big wave? Right. Is that going right. to be a huge wave? I don't know. Um, it could be. But at this point, I, I can't believe that there's not going to be some impact because, as you pointed out, 70% of the country um, – you know, wants Roe v. Wade. Right. And, you know, we have this politically motivated, mostly Republican Supreme Court that's citing, you know, cases from, you know, people who believe in witches back in England (laughs) in the 1700s. And, and, you know, we're not we don't connect with that. You know, like most of most of us don't say, okay, we want to go back to old timey ways. Well, I think the other thing we like, like having these rights. Right. Like you were saying, the other thing we need to really be looking at is learning the lesson of the last time, which is, you know, we got such a slim majority that it didn't get us anywhere. Because if you have two people like Cinema and Mansion who fall down on the job, then you're screwed. And so the question is not, will it keep us our majority, our slim majority? Will it give us another tiny slim majority? But is this going to push people enough over to the part where we have a hefty majority and we can start making the laws we need to make to protect our civil rights. That's the question, I think. I think so too. And then I think you factor in the economy and that that's another thing to be concerned about because that, you know, Roe may not be enough if people are saying, well, I don't like paying this much for gas and I want to vote for somebody and people, they don't even think things out. They just think, okay, if the economy is bad, I'm going to vote for the other side. And that was kind of my concern I was trying to bring up, which is, you know, take a voter who's typically conservative, who doesn't really care either way about Roe because then it doesn't affect him personally. And he's going to be more moved by the gas tanks. You know what I mean? That's what worries me a little bit. Um, but I don't think that those people are going to be huge swing voters anyway. So 
I don't know. Uh, Jana, any last thoughts, anything you want to say to add to that? Well, I, I think in addition, and this is a whole other topic, so it, it, it's sort of tacking it on at the end, but uh, in addition to the Roe v. Wade issue, the real issue at the polls in November is, do we want to maintain a democracy or not? Do we want to have a democracy after November? Because if we do, I'm just, I'm speechless right. with, the, with the concept that people are still thinking that they could possibly vote for MAGA I candidates. I know. I, and I, and I discussed that a little bit too in my intro, you know, that Democrats are definitely going to run on the preservation of democracy. But the problem with that is, again, that that's what they used heavily in 2020 to elect Biden. And it worked really well. It was what we needed. But now it's going to conflict with Biden's approval ratings and it's going to conflict with inflation and it's going to um, conflict with all those rising prices. And people aren't as uh, the voter is not as insightful as you are, sadly. And they sort of see what's hurting their pockets in the immediate and not this elusive concept of protecting democracy, either because they don't really understand what that means, or frankly, they're trying to feed their kids and they don't care. So well, that's... it's going to be up to Democrats to phrase it properly and, and leave Biden out of it as much as possible. Uh, if, I mean, there are ways around it. There have to be, and okay. they have to get creative maybe, but they need to do it. That's a whole nother show. That's what I said. <laughs> but that's I'm a whole sorry. other shot. Yeah. Thanks to everybody who is listening. Thanks to my speakers, Peter and Jana and David. Thanks for tuning in, guys. And I will see you next week. Let's let's do this again at the same time. How does everybody feel about that? Yay, great. I'm glad you like it. So like <laughs> Friday, five o'clock. Let's meet back here and do this all over again. Thanks so much, everybody. Have a great weekend. Bye-bye.